Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Katie Orr. As the pandemic creeps into its second year and as the climate continuously reminds us it's changing, writer Anne Lamott notes that existential exhaustion is everywhere we look these days. In her new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, Lamont asks, where on earth do we start to get our world and joy and hope and our faith in life itself back? Lamont's approach is both spiritual and funny, embracing darkness and light. And we want to hear from you. What has been bringing you hope and joy? That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. In her new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn, Anne Lamont tells a story about her power going out. That becomes a reflection on light and darkness that feels very appropriate for our current times. Shadows steal the show so often when light isn't looking, she writes. Light thinks it's Beyonce shimmering with celestial meanings. But Shadow knows that without it, we ain't got nothing to show for ourselves. No paintings, poetry, or song. Anne Lamont joins us for the hour, and we'll want to hear from you. What has this dark time brought you that you're grateful for? What are you finding hope, joy, and light in? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Anne Lamont, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. So my first question to you is, uh, how's married life? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a whole chapter in the new book on, I think it's the prologue, in fact, on um, (laughs) going around um, on book tours, having people say their first question, how's married life? And how I just want to poke him in the head like a baked (laughs) potato. 
But, um, you know, I got married three days after I got Medicare. <laughs> but I didn't know that of the first two years, one of them would be in quarantine. So most of the time, it's really fun and sweet. I like this guy a lot, and we're still speaking. But other times in quarantine, I feel a little crunchy. And I'll listen to the sound of him eating bacon, and I'll start to just lose my mind. That is so funny. I, I have friends who have told me very similar experiences. They have to eat in separate rooms because they just cannot stand. I mean, and you mentioned you got married later in life. Um, you were newly married when you wrote this book. First of all, did you ever think that you would get married? Um, I didn't feel a frantic need to. I love being alone. I'm really an introvert. Um, I love to, uh, I love to have the house to myself. I love the sacrament of putter and ploppage, you know, where you don't have to be nice to anybody and you can just read all day, which is really all I ever wanted. And um, I didn't really expect to, no, but um, I met this guy on Match. You can actually Google, I think, Anne Lamott on Match and read the piece. Um, and um, it was really an accident. <laughs> and in fact, the day he, we'd been living together for a couple years, so it wasn't like I wasn't really aware of his gravest character defects and little peccadilloes, nor was he of mine. But one day, we were, um, a few years ago, we were watching the U.S. Open on TV, and he said, um, uh, can I ask you something? You know, I was right in the middle of like a Serena Williams match and I said, oh sure, because I thought we had to make a decision about the patio um, pebbles. And I mm -hmm. said, oh sure. And he said, will you marry me? And I looked at him as if he had just burst into flame. I said, wait, what? <laughs> but then our cat had gone missing a couple, and so I said, can we have a cat? Can we get a new cat? And he said, yes. So we call that the cat codicil. And and then we got married. It wasn't really that big a deal. It was like a huge party. Everybody over eight, you know, and and we danced. Sounds perfect. That's how weddings yeah. should be. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you thankful that it happened right before uh, lockdown, the pandemic, or it doesn't seem like it really would have changed much for you? Well, let me answer that in a roundabout way by saying that my last book was called something, 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 um, almost everything, Notes on Hope. And I had wanted to call it Doomed, <laughs> Notes on Hope, because we were two years into Trump. We were, we had, the UN climate change papers had just come out, and I was doing a book tour with Neil around the country, and everywhere I went, people just felt flattened and defeated. And it looked like Trump had a very good chance of being reelected, and that meant no help for the climate and no help for the poor. The only two things that really matter, oh, and democracy, that little <laughs> thing. But um, so I started to think about writing a book that would address the um, crisis that people's spirits were in, that they, they didn't believe that they would get second wins. And that, it, you know, my mother was from Liverpool, so the battle cry was, it's all over for England. And I, I didn't think it was. I thought of the great Yeats poem um, where he said, the center will, will not hold. And I thought, but the center always has hold in its own kind of lifey way, you know, and it's a, a bit too lifey for me some days, but the center, because of our dearest, dearest friends, keeps holding. And so I wrote this book, 
and I had been with Neil and that was making me pretty happy most of the time, which is a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> I, if you ask my tiny cranky self, because, uh, you know, David Roach, the great um, humorist with a very severe facial deformities is the pastor. Uh, he founded a church called the Church of, of 80% Sincerity, <laughs> of which I'm a member. And he says 80% of anything really is a miracle. You know, 80% of being honest and being generous and being um, positive. And so 80% of the time, I feel very, very blessed and, and lucky. I mean, no, I wasn't expecting this. And then, um, then I just kept you know, taking the next right step. And, and I always say to my writing students, do it afraid, do it afraid, but do it, you know. So mm -hmm. I kept moving forward with Neil and he kept meeting me halfway. And, um, you know, I, a lot of Dust Night Dawn is about forgiveness. And, and I do believe that Earth is forgiveness school. And why not practice at your own dining room table? So, um I am glad, and it has been, I won't lie, been very, very strange to have my second year of marriage be in lockdown. So, uh, <laughs> you I, know, but I COVID wonder. college was, um, un was supporting us, which is to say that everybody had to learn how to have a new ordinary life since we couldn't go anywhere. And I always say, hooray for ordinary life. That's where we see the divine. That's where we see the, the goodwill of most people, the incredible sharing and generosity of most people. You know, like Mr. Rogers' mother always told him during crisis and tragedy, look to the helpers. And so we, uh, in COVID college, looked to the EMT, all those nurses who died Oh, my God. And we looked at those long lines, three and four miles long at the food pantries of parents just trying to get a box of food for their kids. And we saw the, the people, the volunteers, getting them that food. And so we learned, um, I think, how really deep the well of compassion inside of us was. And we got more reflective and contemplative because we couldn't go anywhere, you know. And we had to pay better attention to what was right in front of us since we weren't going to the movies or to ACT or to the museums. I mean, right now the daffodils are blooming six feet away from where I'm sitting in these with their crazy yellow and orange clown frills, you know, and their huge <laughs> schnozzes. And so in this year, we've learned to notice and to pay attention, which if you're going to be a writer is the most important thing you can learn to do. So with Neil in a new marriage, I learned all those things. I, my life got much, much quieter. I wasn't racing around like the white rabbit thinking I had all of these important things to do today, like to remember to get graph paper, you know. And instead we were doing the sacrament of ploppage. Neil's out in his garden. I'm writing my stuff. I'm taking the very old dog for walks, and, and it's there's been a lot of blessing. I I want to get to a caller right now, uh, David in Berkeley. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for taking my taking my call. Uh, first, I want to also thank uh, Anne for her amazing writing. I've been teaching um, an excerpt from Bird by Bird uh, called Fecal First Draft. Um, it's actually not fecal, but it's, it's you know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. And uh, that's a very helpful article. Uh, but this semester, 
I'm a writing teacher, a college writing teacher. And this semester has been more difficult than last semester. The most difficult semester I've taught. I've, I've found that no matter what I do, my students' motivation is just leaking away. Um, they're going undergoing so many challenges. I teach both international students and immigrant students. Um, and I, as, as they're struggling, I find that I'm really struggling. I'm feeling so, um, uh, so insufficient and uh, I feel so helpless. I've done everything that I, I can think of, but teaching online, you're not, you don't have that connection with students. And I just am at a loss. I, I don't know how to, how to hold them, how to bring them back. I'm just wondering if you have any advice. Well, that's a great question. And I think that um, it probably applies to everything besides writing students. Like, how do we bring people back to, um, you know, to fighting the good fight? Like Molly Ivan said, you know, the freedom fighters don't always win, but they're always right. And writers don't usually get published, but they can find salvation in the act of writing, in the, in the habit of telling their stories, whether or not they reach an, a bigger audience. And so, you know, I tell my, I'll just tell you what I tell my writing students, and, and none of, very, very few of them get published. And so they get very discouraged, and, um, and especially during COVID, when you couldn't even go to readings and you couldn't do to, go to writing groups and whatnot. But I tell them that no one cares whether they're writing or not, so they better. You know, they need to, you can't get them to do the deep dive into themselves where it really matters that they tell their truth and tell their stories, you know, and that there is a need for their stories. That, like the great Barry Lopez said, um, sometimes we need stories more than we need food. And so the need for people and, and um, people, people that have just arrived in this country or people who have started writing for the first time in 40 years, the need for them to share their experience, strength and hope and their memories and their visions and their, you know, their, their, um, their, every, their, 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 their everything is, has never we been more important. So I think what you do is you just help them stay, keep it really, really small. I, um, it's bird by we, bird. And we have to go and take a quick break right now. We're talking with Bay Area writer Anne Lamont. If you would like to weigh in on the conversation, give us a call. 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or at KQED Forum on Twitter. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We're talking with Bay Area writer Anne Lamott. Her new book is Dusk, Night, Dawn. And you were sort of getting at this before the break, but I, I wonder, 
how COVID or pandemic has affected your creativity. And I just, you had written something, you describe writing as words tugging at your sleeve. And I just relate to that so much because there are times when it feels like, you know, the words just have to come out. You just have to write. Uh, It's like, it's not a choice. Unfortunately, more often I find myself sitting at my computer just being like, right, right, right. (laughs) Instead of the words you know, tumbling out. But how has your creativity been affected this past year? Well, that's a great question. I also wanted to just finish um, what I wanted to say about the last question of how do you get people back to that, that, uh, you know, that debt of honor that we have as writers to get our work done one day at a time. And I think what's what's scary and is like that all that blank paper, and especially in the COVID, the blank paper and the and the great silences all around us, um, of no longer having gatherings and 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 the great nutritious air of of being with like-minded men and women. But um, Doctoro said something, El Doctoro, that I love, that I think is the secret of life in all areas. He said. Writing is like driving at night with the headlights on. You can only see a little ways in front of you, but you can make the whole journey that way. And so with you or with the last person's question and people that are feeling really, really flattened after a year of not getting to meet and be um, encouraged and, um, and, and, uh, and, you know, given approval for what they, it's so hard to write. Writing is so hard, but they haven't been able to get the approval or the enthusiasm of their friends and their teachers and the other writing students. But, But if you keep it really small, you can get it done. You can, I always had my students put a one inch picture frame on their desk and all they had to do on any given day was whatever they could see through that one-inch picture frame. One memory, one passage, one vision, one idea, one possible ending, or, or even more harrowing, one possible beginning. And that's all they had to do because it's the huge unassaulted ice flow of an unwritten memoir or, or a novel or screenplay or poem that is so kind of stifling and so you write one thing Mm -hmm. and you write it really badly secret of life yes yes I think that is such good advice because it's so hard often I find if I can just make myself write the first sentence then the rest comes but it's looking at the totality of it that is just overwhelming Uh, yeah I want to go to Lindsay in uh, San Mateo Lindsay go ahead Hey there. I just want to preface this statement by saying how much I really appreciate the conversation and certainly don't begrudge anyone the opportunity to be able to slow down. But as somebody that is an operations manager of a bakery and I'm lucky to have a job and this this hasn't been quiet for many of us. This hasn't been silence and quietness. This has been nothing but noise. And I would just love to hear stories from that perspective. And I understand we can't write that perspective because we're busy working, but just constantly hearing about the struggle of creatives because of how slow and quiet it is that's so hard and I just think being able to hear a different story from a different perspective not just the struggle but what have we noticed in the noise in this change not just what have we noticed in the silence and I think it's just really disappointing that there's not more of that and I guess I'll just let that statement stand and yeah take my comment off the air well, thank you so much Lindsay. 
Yeah, go ahead, Ann. How do I you think it's a great to it? question, and um, the whole book, Dust Night Dawn, is is those stories, you know, because mostly they don't have. Mostly they were written before COVID, but they were written in the crisis of the UN papers on climate change, and they were written in the crises of what goes on at our own dining tables, and the crises of you know of a failing economy, an economy where. Um, you know, the, the rich get fantastically richer and the middle class and the poor do worse and worse and the whole system is unfair and jerks win. You know, that's this reality. And so the stories in this book are really about where you start. You start where your where your butt is. You start in what's true. You start in that day and you push back your sleeves and you look around and you see what is still working in COVID college. Even if you're in a in a really chaotic work environment, what still works there? Well, people are being really gentle with themselves. And people are, um, when I was coming up in the 50s, people used to talk about sacrifice, which I don't think you hear anymore, um, and sacrificial love and people getting out of themselves to become people for others. So we have two, we're, we're, I live here with my son, my grandson, my husband's daughter, and all in these very, um, separate spaces and, and most everybody's working like crazy and except for me but um because i have a book out and so i don't have to i'm not i can't be expected to do much of anything until i'm stable stable again psychiatrically but everybody's <laughs> working like crazy and what i'm seeing them doing all of these other people the other grown-ups here they're taking on what other people can't handle and they're saying what what can I do? Can I take any of that off of you? I can take your shift. If you need to be with your family, if your family's scared, and uh, let me do it. I'm good. And then you can make it up to me down the road or not. And so um, all I can say is I wrote a whole book of stories that I think answer that question. That we see how we see how much grace there is whatever whatever you think of as grace i think of it as spiritual wd-40 and and a friend of mine a very aged priest in la said the secret is not to try harder but to resist less and so with stuff with kind of pandemonium all around you it's maybe good to not try to horse it all into submission um but instead to res resist less and to to maybe help people get their sense of humor back by working on your own sense of humor and I always think that that uh, laughter is carbonated holiness, and that or Trevor Noah said a few weeks ago. He said, if you're laughing with people, you know you're really sharing something, you know. And so if you're freaked out and overwhelmed, and you share it, you get your sense of humor back. You're sh it's pain divided. It's overwhelm divided. So um, it's a great question, but it it takes a whole book to answer it. I I wonder. Um... You know, of course, your your subtle humor is a, a hallmark of your writing. And one thing I personally love about people, I, I find during, like, dark times, like we've been going through, that people are just really, they can be very funny. And they're not doing it for anyone else. It's just sort of like a way for them to cope, even in the most painful situations. I mean, what is your take on that? It seems like humor really is one of the ways we're so, sort of designed to cope with adversity. Humor and, but also for me, um, tears, you know, mm. crying and laughter and service are the ways that I cope. Crying, I've just, ta I've talked about laughter. Um, 
which is really hard some days. You know, my very first book, Hard Laughter, was about trying to keep our sense of humor in our family. When I was 24 or 23 and my dad was diagnosed with metastatic brain cancer, it was called Hard Laughter, and it is still really hard some days. And as I said, life is just way too lifey about a third of the time. But so there's laughter, and then there's t crying and letting yourself do real. You know, there's probably two or three your very, very best friends that you could cry with. And um, and I was so, in the 50s, you just didn't cry. If you cried or were angry at the dinner table, you got sent to your room without eating. So mm -hmm. coincidentally, some of us ended up with tiny lifelong eating disorders. And we were shamed into not, we were told not to cry. It was unseemly. and. Um, and so in, I got sober 35 years ago, and the women who helped me get sober said, cry. You know, that they taught me that the crying would hydrate me and, and cleanse me and moisturize and baptize me, and it was going to water the seeds and the very, very dry ground at my feet. And it was just going to be such a relief. There's only a couple people I can cry with, but boy, is that the most... I cry so rarely, and when I cry, it's I feel like God has reached down and touched me, and I'm better afterwards. And the third thing is service. You know, if you, for me, if I want to have generous and loving feelings inside of me, paradoxically, I need to take loving and generous actions. You know, that you take the action and the insight follows. You know, figure it out is a terrible slogan for life. Mm -hmm. And so the easiest thing to do is to fill up a bag of canned foods and powdered foods. And of course, it being Easter, uh, Easter and Passover, you get you should get a bunch of peeps for the kids in, in families who aren't doing well. And you take it over to the areas of your county where the service people live, where the incidence of COVID is so much higher. And you drop off a couple of bags of food and peeps. Um, anonymously, you signal one of the volunteers. You say, here, here, just take this. And then you get really happy for the rest of the day. I don't know how that works, but 100% of the time, if you want to get really loving, warm feelings, do call your most annoying relative. The person <laughs> who, and I'll be 67 in two weeks, who for, for 67 of 66 of those, oh, say, let's say 65 of those years, has <laughs> had weird comments about your your body, your life choices, your partners, you're everything, and you call her because she's very lonely. She's in a home, mm. and you call her, and you say, hey, can I come over later today in the parking lot? I've got both my vaccines, and I have I have a present for you, and if they say no, you say, okay, well, I just want to check in, make sure you're okay. So there are these simple actions you can take that are going to completely cause the place of the earth to shift underneath you, and you're going to get in a friendlier mood. It just happens to be true. I want to go to uh, Sammy in court in Corda Madeira. Sammy, go ahead. Hi, this is this is Sammy. And I Anne, I wanna tell you I have been laughing when the I when when you were describing how you would eat breakfast across from your husband when you first got married and you'd hear his slopping over his soup and everything was so 
it was loud. And I and I thought, oh my God, am I going to do any five years of this? And and it's just you are so special. You know, the funny thing is, we met in a writing class, and everything we wrote about, we were opposites. And I don't know how we ever we were to, we knew each other. This is way back in the fifties. We knew each other for uh, what six years or something before we were married. And, um, you know, everything was so different in that world. So we never lived together. We never had any connection with each other. And it, then when we got married, it was, oh, my God, really? And now we've been married 60 years. Wow. And wow. do you know the funny thing is we're like two peas in a pod. I mean, it's just we're just exactly... We think together the same way. We don't have to say too much because we're thinking the same thing. And it's it's really, I mean, it's been a joy now. When I look back, we've just had such a wonderful life together. But in the beginning, it was not easy. Absolutely. But And I give you great credit that you did this. You got married for the first time. What was it? Just three years. Two years, two ago, years yeah. after you got mm. your Medicare, right? Yeah, uh, three days after I got Medicare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sammy. Thank anyway, you so thank much you, for and Mazel Tov. You know, in er- lots of things are hard. Marriage is hard. Intimate relationships are hard. Um, the cl- turning climate change around is going to be hard. Having kids who scare you to death is hard, but you know what? What this book is about is that we're so we're good at hard. We stopped smallpox. We came up with the antiretrovirals. Some of us have watched our kids get clean and sober. Some of us have survived unsurvivable loss. So hard shouldn't stop us. We've stopped fascism a couple times now. But um, anyway, that's wonderful. And, and Mazel Tov on your on your um, wonderful marriage of all these years. And I I wonder how you approach joy and the guilt you might feel, some people might feel for feeling that. I just mean that, you know, we all live in this world. There are horrible things happening 24-7. I work in the news business, so I feel like sometimes I'm acutely aware of them. But then, you know, I also have two little kids, and it's really important to be happy and present for them, but you almost feel guilty, almost like, how can I be happy when there's all this stuff happening in the world? I wonder how do you think people should reclaim joy, but also be okay with feeling that way? Well, I mean, I think you it's just such a balance. The world is heartbreaking, and families can be heartbreaking, and what happens to our elders, and what happens to the poor, and, you know, if... And we all have, you know, all good people have a lot wrong with them. <laughs> you know, if if you feel scared or guilty or angry or lost and very odd, then come on over and sit with us. Otherwise, we're not interested. And so we also have the... The, the, the scar tissue inside of us, you know, that is, and we, we do have the shame and the guilt. And, and if I could just take that one aspect of what I hear you saying is, is the guilt about that we're, we're doing much, much better than 95% of the world. But, 
My Jesuit friend Tom Weston said the most brilliant thing to me that changed my life 25 years ago. He said, the five rules of a, being an American adult are that, one, you must not have anything wrong with you or different about you. And rule, you must be able to pass in all circumstances. Rule two is if you have something wrong with you or different, and I would add, or, or better about you, but if you have something wrong or different about you, you really have to get over it as quickly as you can. And rule three is that if you can't get over it or correct it or seem to be just like everybody else, you should pretend that you have, that you are, you know, that it's not an issue anymore. The fourth rule is that if you can't even pretend to have gotten over it, or that you should just not show up because it's really so painful for the rest of us to see you. And the fifth mm. rule is that if you're going to insist on the right to show up, you should at least have the decency to feel ashamed. And so that is what everyone I know and every single, I've probably taught 10,000 writing students, every single one of them has been up against is this shame, this institutionalized and internalized shame that either we're not good enough or we're doing better than everybody. And so that is where I urge people to begin is to do the deep dive into, you know, if you want to heal it, you got to reveal it. And what you got to do is tell your very, very best girlfriend that you have it. And she will almost certainly will say, oh, I do too. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned it. Then you start talking about it and you talk about how painful it is to have that and that you do feel guilty and that you have more than anyone so what should you do give away as much as you can bear you know send mm. it off to food pantry send it off to your local npr station kqed send it <laughs> yes. off to the aclu send it off to the lawyers who are working with the children at the border give away everything you can and you will start to be healed of the shame that you're doing okay you know and um mm -hmm. it's hard and it's scary and it's weird and we just and we're good at hard yeah we're talking with bay area writer Anne lamott her new book is dusk night dawn and we want to hear from you how have you been finding hope and joy and where have you been finding it or let us know why you're losing hope. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Katie Orr, and we're talking with Bay Area writer Anne Lamont. Her new book is Dusk, Night, Dawn. I wanted to read a comment from Kate. 
She writes, I am a writer and also a single mom of two young kids who've been out of school for a year, so my pandemic has been anything but quiet and calm. It has been transformative, and at some point I'll be able to write about it. But whew, not now, she says. Susan writes, it's so hard for me to start writing and life is so busy. Any other suggestions for being more disciplined about writing, even if just for ourselves? And I know you've talked about this a little bit, but, you know, it seems like people are craving, (laughs) craving advice on how they can just sit down and write. I mean, what do they do? Do they just sit down and write? Yeah, you know, nobody can get you to do it. You've got to get your butt in the chair. It's the single most complex part of the whole problem is I always think of um, Winnie the Pooh of Christopher Robin's pop gun and you have to hold (laughs) the pop gun to your head and you have to sit down I use bribes Mm. and threats all through uh, my my life is not quiet by the way it's a lot more Mm. quiet and contemplative but I have a grandchild here who goes to school and mostly didn't get to and mostly was on on um, you know uh video school and Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of chaos here and I have always very very sick friends to whom I'm putting with whom I'm putting in a lot of energy and attention and walks in masks six feet away so it's not like I'm sitting here in the in a in a Buddhist um, trance Um, but um, with the writing thing and I know it's hard I don't have a little kid and I don't know how people do it to be frank but except for grace and the spiritual WD-40 and, and, and that we're good at hard. But with the writing, you know, you gotta, you got to get yourself to the chair. Uh, bribes and threats, which were mostly what I relied on as a, as a single mother with no money, um, I would bribe and threat my child into <laughs> doing, um, you know, behaving and into doing what he needed to do, his homework and his, his Lego time and his growing up and his shower and whatnot. But with, as a writer... What works for me is to say, okay, Annie, if you write, look at that one-inch picture frame. You're only going to write. It's going to take an hour. That one passage where you're out at that pond in Inverness, you're six years old, you're with your Uncle Don, he's drunk, and some, and that thing happens that maybe changed you forever. That's all you're going to write, and I want you to do it really badly. I want you just to get it all down on paper, and if you do that, then we're going we're gonna to get up and go watch MSNBC for half an hour. <laughs> and then you sit back down and you do the what's the bribe okay if you can write that one passage about going for a walk with somebody who you really really can't stand who really makes your skin run crawling for its cute little life then i'm going to make you a grilled cheese sandwich and you just keep doing it it's little by little it's that doctor line it's writing it's like driving at night with the headlights on you can only see a little ways in front of you, and you can make the whole journey that way. So you, you, you do 10 feet of driving in the dark, and you do it badly. You know, one last I, thing well, yeah. um, that I always um, think is helpful is if there is any way, probably online, to find a writing partner or a small writing group that you could do it easily by Zoom, or you could do it at your local independent bookstore once we're all back Um, And you have a commitment to them that you are going to show up with five finished pages every two weeks. And, uh, you know, and also if you buy a book at an independent bookstore, it guarantees you a better seat in heaven, closer (laughs) to the dessert table or the cheese table where I will be. And um, and so if you have 
if you're if you have somebody who's breathing their hot breath down your neck because you owe them some pages that's a really great incentive i want to go to bola in san jose go ahead hi this is my first time uh actually uh calling to form because i really love npr station um I wanted to say that one of the positive things for me is just watching some of my favorite um, old shows that I've used to watch when I was a kid, even some of my favorite cartoons. Also, another thing is watching YouTube and just finding ways, just using that to find ways to be creative and also um, exercising. Because a lot of, because just these past five months, I've been on and off working out whether it be outside or just mainly indoors. But I've been really, it's been really helping me as well because it's gotten my endorphins up. I'm a lot calmer. I'm just, I'm more relaxed. But, and also just as kind of an artist myself, I really want to find ways. It really taught me, this pandemic has really taught me to really pursue my passions with no apologies because, I mean, with being indoors, it's like, we have, I mean, we, we have to be creative. And for me, it's like I've been finding ways to create, to be creative and it's really helped me stay positive I and have that. hope. I love that. Cre- yeah. Following yeah, your passions I mean, with no apologies. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, if you can get out and walk every day somehow, or if you can get someone to wheel you out every single day, it's a miracle. You know, it's like a you look up, you look around, you do anything what that what the writer is supposed to be doing anyway. You notice that there really are green shoots breaking through the concrete and the grout in the garden tiles. You, uh, it's like being spritzed back awake, you know. And it's my our old pastor used to have a, a great sermon about how you can trap bees in mason jars with a drop of honey on the bottom of it without a lid because they don't look up. You know, they just kind of walk around bitterly bumping into the glass walls and all they have to do is look up and um, and they can fly away. And all we have to do is step outside and look up to get to be better than we were, you know, because you look up and you say, wow, what a beautiful sky. You don't look up and go, well, that's kind of a medium full moon tonight. You know, you look up and you say, wow, and you might even get a tiny flicker of gratitude for the beauty of nature. I wonder how you have dealt with giving up control this year, because it seems like no matter what our circumstances, everyone's had to give up some kind of control. And, you know, especially for people who like to have things a certain way, (laughs) this year has not been good for that. I mean, how have you been coping? Well, I think that's been really hard for everyone because we live um, in our comfort zone tends to do with feeling with having this illusion that we're in control. But I have a disease of good ideas for other people. (laughs) And it's one of the ways as as a child, I had a measure of control in thinking that I was the problem. I was the reason my parents were so unhappy together and I could just do better and shine brighter but not shine so bright that it made my older brother feel bad in comparison so that was a lot of stress and I had migraines at five years old 
So if I had, if I felt that I was the problem, there's control there. And if I felt that I was the solution, there's the control there. That if I was responsible, you know, I had a little clipboard at five and six with my, with a caseload, mom, dad, my older brother and the baby who I was raising because my parents were so unhappy and they probably should have chosen to raise orchids or teacup poodles instead of children. So those two <laughs> things have been default places I land on. And it's kind of, they're my comfort zones, thinking I'm the problem and need to do better, and that um, that I have good ideas for for uh, everybody to be happy again and, and happy all the time. And you know what? And so you can kind of bust yourself of that, that I don't even have good ideas for me, you know? And how could I, if I don't, if it's not my problem, I don't, I probably don't have a very good idea for someone else. And this, be, this, has been a huge blessing of COVID college to realize what an illusion most of our effort. I do have tiny, tiny, tiny problems with control. And for me to get busted gently by life and by my own willingness to start to um, give that up, you know, to just do what I, what my friend Terry I mentioned said is not to, the secret being not to try harder, but to resist less. And to start to see that people are actually kind of doing okay. They're on their own hero's journey. And it's disrespectful. Like with my son is 31. And for me to get on his path with him, on his journey with, you know, I would bring along sunscreen and chapstick and a juice box. It's disrespectful. And it actually hurts him. But I have mm -hmm. this longing to control. I don't want more bad things to happen to him. He has right. had nine years clean and sober, and I, I want to control this a little bit so that he doesn't, you know, slip. Yeah. And it's disrespectful, not only disrespectful, but it doesn't work. I don't always let that stop me. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but so, you know, the awareness is where um, I begin when I notice that I'm trying to control me or life. You know, I'm trying to horse life into submission. It never works. And it makes everybody worse than they already were, including me. It reminds me of, like, fighting with my toddler. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. right? right. <laughs> she, but I have to I interrupt. I never win. For, I have <laughs> yes. to interrupt just for one second to say to correct something from the last segment, that my husband does not eat in a slurpy way, nor does he almost <laughs> ever eat soup. And plus, this is God's own truth, that eating with him every night on the couch is like church for me. It's like heaven. Mm -hmm. We both eat whatever we want. We often don't eat the same thing. And we watch Rachel Maddow. And it's, it's, it's heaven. So I wanted just to clear that up. That's so nice. Yes. Since, he, <laughs> Thank since you. he may be listening. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I want to go to BZ in Sonora. Go ahead. Hey, this is a real honor for me because, Annie, you have been one of my heroes for the last 25, 30 years. And you have said things today uh, that just sink down into my soul. And I sometimes feel like you're walking inside of my brain when you are um, writing and today when you're talking. Uh, and with regards to me and uh, how COVID has impacted my own life, um, I happen to be a storyteller and I travel a great deal and I work in my community a great deal doing storytelling programs. But since COVID, of course, all of that stopped, like everything in the um, performance industries stopped. And uh, as a result of that, for the first time in my adult life, 
I've been, and I'm 71, I've been forced to, like, stay home. And, mm-hmm. and, in, and in that uh, joyful imprisonment, I remembered everything that I've been wanting to do at home for decade after decade, projects. I finished a quilt. I, um, we finally did a vegetable garden for the first time, finally. One of my grandkids is living with us, and he has been my wonderful Sherpa for everything that has to happen on our two-acre piece of property. I am actually going for walks every day on those two acres. I don't have to go anywhere. I can just walk out here in my own yard. And mm-hmm. it's been such a gift of time that is for my own soul, for my own replenishment and um and you know i read bird by bird and i i i I used to be an english teacher and i used that phrase constantly with my students to just remind them you just do it bird by bird and um and i i just i just want to thank you for the rich um blessing that you've given to so many myself deeply uh and the other thing i just want to end with this uh, I decided that in this time of COVID, it was a perfect opportunity to embrace new learning that I had just been putting aside. Um, I happen to be a member of uh, Wyandotte Nation of Oklahoma. I've been wanting to learn our native language forever. And so what have I been doing during COVID? I've been learning to speak Wyandotte with um, with a wonderful culture keeper within our tribe. And um, thank you so thank much, you BZ. Every- I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Know, you. Yeah, I, I love it. I wonder, we've been hearing a lot about people, you know, who have found ways to cope with this pandemic. I feel like how do we turn our hope for better times for this world into actual change? And does finding a more spiritual, peaceful place make people, do you think, more or less likely to go out and actually change the world? Well, I think everybody has been in a better mood since November 4th. (laughs) And that it has, I mean, the subtitle of Dust Night Dawn is on renewal and courage. And I think people feel a lot less frightened and um, and th- that gives them renewal and a second wind. But yeah, I think spiritually, to keep it very simple, to just think about Earth as Forgiveness School tells me everything I need to know on any given day. That um, that you know, nonviolent resistance changes the people who are hurting us. You know, the promise, the the oath keepers or whoever they were on on January sixth, the promise keepers, the far right, you know, who are just constantly searching the scripture for people to hate so that they can relax a little. But you just keep non nonviolent resistance and forgiveness. Like Martin Luther King said, don't let them get you to hate them. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's so profound. You look at the forgiveness in the culture and you you become a part of that. Look at the Amish when there was that slaughter in their school and all those schoolgirls were killed by one of their own. The Amish responded by welcoming, welcoming the wife of the shooter into their community and into their memorial services. They said, come be with this. Come be in this with us and or look at mother emmanuel you know when 10 or 11 people were slaughtered during bible study what did they talk about they talked about forgiveness they preached forgiveness and so the slaughter became about love and radical forgiveness and the and sweet faces and we can become a part of that by deciding 
that we now are and we're not positive what the action is but again something will tug on your sleeve like it does when you're writing and it will help you know what the next right action is Amy writes on how she's finding joy about once a month, a group of friends get together on Zoom and we all bring some work of art to share. It can be a painting, sculpture, story, poem, song that we made ourselves or not. And then this leads to great appreciation for each other and to discussions about our lives and etc. Michael tweets, gardening brings him joy, even though seeds were in short supply last year and his favorite nursery was deemed non-essential. Just sitting in the backyard pooling weeds, driving to the country, to the county park to walk the dog. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think those are just such great ways. I, it's so interesting. You talk a lot about friendship. I, I noticed during this pandemic year, I have had a bunch of girlfriends from college and we were all very close, but we've grown up, have families, all that stuff. And But we've come back together just once or twice over Zoom, but it makes such a difference. I mean, how oh, important yeah. have your friends been during huge. this year? Just huge. But I do walk every day and I have... Some walks with girlfriends, one from when I was six years old, my best friend from six years old, and I still walk a few times a week. I walk with my husband, Neil, and I walk with two very, very, very sick people, which is the slowest kind of tick-not-han walking you can do. But my friends have been everything. But, you know, so has my church community on Zoom, and so have, which is very small, 30 people, and so have my recovery communities. And it's like, it's like little living advent calendars, you know, of our our one and two inch faces um, sharing with us at a really intimate and loving level. So it's really been, it's it's really my friends, my two or three or four best friends, my younger brother, my husband, my son and my grandson are entirely the reason that I have been able to keep the faith for the last year, let alone the last four years. We've been talking with writer Anne Lamont, and you've been listening to Forum. I'm Katie Orr. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead. Forum is produced by Tina Lauenberg, Polly Stryker, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith. Our interim senior editor is Judy Campbell. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Leslie Torres and Kimea Akbari. Our executive editor is Ethan Toven-Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Katie Orr. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.